and I may from time to time uh, admit people from the lobby. Um, all right. So uh, welcome to our latest word for word session, and I'm extremely pleased or not word for word. Good grief. This is a wireside chat. Um, anyway, welcome, and I'm extremely pleased uh, to welcome our guest tonight, Benjamin Nugent, who is the director of the uh, MFA Low Residency Mountain View program at SNHU. Welcome, Ben. Hey, thanks, Paul. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's 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 my pleasure. Um, have really been looking forward to chatting with you. Um, it's a it's a bit of an irony or or oddity, perhaps, that both of us work for Southern New Hampshire University and yet live not that far apart in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, yeah, it, it is an oddity and, and it isn't given given our profession. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, um, yeah, they're uh, all of the writers in the eastern seaboard. Not all of them. Many of them <laughs> seem to be clustered into two or three neighborhoods uh, around here. <laughs> it's true. Um, not not that you have to live in Brooklyn to succeed as a writer. I don't think by any means, but it doesn't hurt. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't hurt. Um, it's kind of um, it's kind of good to catch the competition out of the corner of your eye as they bicycle past uh, <laughs> on their on their way to the supermarket. And, um, yeah, well, yeah, you know, it's it's um, I mean, New England is obviously a, a place full of writers, too, but um, it's it's uh, you know Brooklyn is close enough to Manhattan where the big publishing houses and the agencies are, and yet far away enough so that you know you can forget they exist when you want. Yeah, to. exactly. Yeah. I I came to New York in the um, in the early eighties, mm -hmm. um, and that was what drew me was the proximity to the publishing world, and uh, I kind of became a kind of a lowly. Uh, hanger on in that world by by working for magazines as a slush pile reader and, and stuff like that. What, what about you? What what brought you to Brooklyn? Uh, yeah, you know what what brought me to Brooklyn was um, a desire to be a writer and and meet other writers and write for magazines and um, be part of the New York world in general. And I moved here when I was twenty one. Um, right out of college and kind of didn't really know what to expect. Like, I think it was it wasn't like I really knew what happened in New York. I just kind of knew that you were supposed to move there, maybe. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I mean, so, I, you know, yeah, I kind of yeah. figured it out as I went. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's quite if that is quite true anymore that that, yeah. um, uh, you know, the, everything is so much more dispersed now. Yeah. Everything is taking place online anyway. Self-publishing has become far more uh, of a viable pathway, I guess, to, um, you know, a, a success, successful literary career. It certainly seems that, uh, yeah, for younger generations, uh, the literary world happens as much on Twitter as it does in New York City, uh, or in MFA programs as much as in New York City. Uh, yeah. Whereas when I was 21 in 1999, um, you know, MFA programs are still a little more marginal um and magazine writing was kind of a fashionable way to make a living um magazines were doing really well at that at that time uh and so yeah new york was much much more of an obvious choice than it would be now and you um 
you have written for a number of prestigious magazines and and journals. I mean, you had a and for all I know, still do have a, a career as a successful uh, journalist and and periodical writer. Is that something you still pursue? Yeah, yeah, I still do it. Um, you know, uh, most recently for Harper's and Travel and Leisure, but um, yeah, here and there. Um, I don't just write fiction. I also write. I still write journalism sometimes. Yeah, mm-hmm. to keep one's hand in it. But I still have nonfiction students sometimes. So. Right. And but do you see yourself primarily as a novelist now? As a short story writer, actually. Yeah, yeah that's what I, I know. I'm, you've yeah. you've published two collections of short stories, I believe, and and one novel. Uh, one collection of short stories. Oh, okay. Oops, sorry. Uh, but it's my only book that I like. It's the only book okay. that anyone should ever read. Uh, <laughs> and what what is the title of that book for those? Uh, for, for, for those who might not know, uh, Fraternity. Um, and uh, thank you for letting me plug it. Um, oh, it's for sure. It's a short story collection that came out um, a couple of years ago and came out last year in paperback. And um, it's about uh, the members of a fraternity house, but also everyone in their orbit. And so it's not all young men. It's um, like everyone who sort of circles the fraternity. So were, were you in a fraternity? Definitely not. Um, <laughs> I grew up in, in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, which is where the book takes place, um, right near uh, what was then known as Greek Row. Okay. And, um, and if you're in high school, you know, um, you can go to those parties, you you know, they sort of spill out of the houses and uh, you really see them. And they were kind of a despised group in, in Amherst where I grew up. Like, like I was in a band in high school, like a punk band. And like, I remember my bass player, like leaning his entire torso out the window as we drove <laughs> by and shouting, Jock Gestapo at the frat boy. <laughs> and then, you know, shouting back, like, you know, like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> why are you saying that? And um, and sort of being fascinated, um, you know, by uh, these guys who were so villainized by by everyone I knew. And yeah, you could go into the parties at that time, and it was it was actually when I where I saw some of my first shows. You know, were were bands playing house parties at UMass. Um, and and so I went to a college that didn't have any fraternity, um, but um you know had that early early exposure right is the eternal conflict between the townies and the and the the local and the local students yeah yeah i suppose exacerbated by the fraternity culture yeah but you know i'll tell you um it was actually teaching undergrads that i learned a lot of the best stories like it wasn't just stuff i picked up um in amherst it was when i was teaching creative writing to 20 year olds um, that they would come into my office hours and tell me amazing, sad, beautiful, funny stories that were happening in their real lives. And mm-hmm. um, it was actually just a real lesson in how important it is to have your subjects trust you. Um, that if, if people really feel like you'll respect their story and write about them sympathetically, they'll, they'll really let you into their lives. And that's a lesson that applies equally, I imagine, to nonfiction and fiction. Very much so. Um, and I would say that my training in journalism was very helpful, um, that I knew how to just kind of be quiet and ask questions. And I think for anyone who wants to research a certain subculture, like, I don't know whether, you know, obviously for you it won't be frat boys out there, but whatever historical time you're interested in or living person you want to interview, 
Um, one of the most important lessons that you learn as a journalist is don't try to blend in. Like, don't try to act like a frat boy if you're going to interview a frat boy. Don't try to act like a punk rocker if you're going to interview a punk rocker or whoever. Um, or a Russian soldier or whoever you're interviewing. Don't, don't try to impersonate them or pretend that you're one of them um, as you would if you were, say, a spy going undercover. Um, the way to do it is to be absolutely clear about your outsider status and totally neutral and unashamed of it and just say, hey, you know, I'm an alien from another planet. You know, I, I bear you no ill will and I'm, I'm interested in you. You know, explain your world to me. Um, and that's actually a much better position from which to gain an understanding and more respectful than like, I'm trying to make you think I'm one of you, you know? Mm -hmm. right. uh, and and that that's that was a really important lesson I learned from being a reporter when I was young. But don't you at some point, regardless of whether you're, you're writing, um, I mean, straight up reporting is one thing, but but uh, regardless of whether you're writing, say, a, a profile for a magazine or, or writing a piece of fiction that's based on personal experiences that you've had, mm -hmm. uh, don't you at some point have to have to render some kind of some kind of judgment? Uh, I mean, I, I keep thinking of that line from uh, Janet Malcolm, you know, mm -hmm. where she says, like, uh, any any journalist that thinks for, you know, that reflects seriously a, a, upon what we do for a living knows that we are all monsters, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, do you agree with that? Uh, mm. To some degree, you know, um, I think that there is um, in journalism a necessary willingness to um, portray your subjects in a way that your subjects would find highly distasteful. Um, but uh, I think I think that's not necessarily monstrous for one thing. I mean, I think if you're reporting on government, for example, then like an, a kind of oppositional or skeptical uh, role is appropriate for the press. You know, um, absolutely. Public figures, you know, accept that when they become public figures, especially if they're politicians, that their um, deeds are going to be exposed. And, um, you know, I, I also have done journalism or did journalism when I was young that I came to feel ashamed of very quickly after I'd done it. Um, and I think what's tough about being a magazine reporter is, or a newspaper reporter, is you have to take what assignments your editors give you if you're on staff. You don't get right. to make those ethical calls on your own. Um, but you know, you know, Malcolm Glad, Mal sorry, Janet Malcolm's a great journalist, and and so I, I contradict her at, at my peril. But I actually think that a lot of reporters are extremely ethical about what they do and um you know uh you know a, a, an interesting example um you know is that um you know there there are profile writers at the new yorker who will you know criticize other profiles in the new yorker for not being ethical enough um you know or and there are also profile writers at the new yorker and other places who if they you know, accept a profile assignment and find themselves hating their subject will ask to be taken off of it. And Jenna Malcolm is clearly of a different, kind of a different yeah. class. It's okay <laughs> for her to hate her subject. 
Right. I mean, it's in fact, it might be helpful. Uh, it it uh, reminds me of of book reviewing. You know, when I when I started out, that was one of my many freelance jobs. I had regular book review columns <laughs> in a number of uh, genre publications. Mm-hmm. And at first I dove into it with zeal as a as a writer and and um, maybe even more a writer and critic, maybe even more than a book reviewer. And I took a real pleasure in kind of skewering uh, mm-hmm. what I considered to be the, the weaknesses of the of the books and the, and the writers and the publishers that published drivel like that. Um, mm-hmm. But like you said, I came to be uh, ashamed of 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 that kind of writing. Um, it was a wisdom I had to learn, unfortunately, yeah. at the expense of of other people. Um, but uh, there is no pleasure in that ultimately, and no sense of real accomplishment. Because um, I guess I came to realize that pretty much every writer is is doing the best that they can. I mean, I think that's true. Um, I think the very greatest journalists are able to write about people as if they were characters in a great novel, mm. which is to say they know them so well that they can show them as deeply flawed and making serious mistakes. Um, that makes so, me think of somebody like uh, Robert Caro. I mean, that seems yeah. to be, yeah. Yeah, or from an even more merciful slant, like Rachel Aviv, you know what I mean? Like people who are willing to say this person seriously misstepped, you know, they were mm-hmm. seriously delusional. Um, but that, you know, writing about them lovingly is about being close enough to them that you can see their great flaws and their great failures, even their moral failures, and, and still treat them with respect and, and warmth. Right. Um, and I guess uh, the person I think about a lot is Faulkner, because Faulkner knew that the Deep South, when he grew up in it, um, was in many ways, of, or at least certainly politically, a horrifying place. You know, he was he was no uh, fool, and he knew that you know lynchings were happening. He didn't shy away from describing them. He knew that you know terrible racial prejudice was ruling the you know way people were treated. Um, and also, in some sense, loved his neighbors and his town. And, um, you know, he made plenty of mistakes in the way he wrote about the South and many novels and stories that contain terribly racist passages that, I, um, that you know, should never be forgiven. But he also tried to show how, you know, reprehensible um, the people who lived around him could be and also to love them. And even though he failed to strike that balance many times, I still think about his attempt to do it. Um, in my, Absolutely, in my nonfiction. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a big uh, a big uh, admirer of of Faulkner for for many reasons. Although I want to acknowledge all of his various shortcomings. Yeah, um, but you know, uh, at a certain level, you know, of greatness, I guess uh, some stuff falls away and some stuff endures. You know, and I think about. Um, somebody like Toni Morrison, who would have every reason to, you know, to to despise Faulkner, uh, at least on an artistic level, uh, recognized his achievements and and um, you know uh, accorded him uh, the rec- mutual recognition of one giant to another. And and yeah. here's speaking of giants, here's our my co-host Melissa Hart. Hi, <laughs> I'm sorry I'm late. <laughs> That's all right. Thanks. I'm glad you could make it. And Melissa, this is our guest, Benjamin Nugent. 
Hi, Benjamin. It's good to meet you. Yeah, good to meet you too. Thanks for having. We we were talking a little bit about about journalism, and and you are a journalist as well. So so um, we were we were talking about the I guess the ethics of 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 journalism of of kind of. Uh, what do you what do you owe to your subject and what do you owe to your readers and and things like that? Wow, that's yes. a good topic. Hey, man, it's got it got heavy right away. I no kidding. <laughs> well, catch me up what I missed. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I think I think we're going to move beyond that at, at this point <laughs> now that now that you're here. I, I think we should talk a little bit about our respective programs um, because SNHU is, is, is a bit unusual in that it has an online MFA, and I think it's one of the only institutions in the country that does have an all online MFA. Then it has a low residency MFA, which Ben is the director of the Mountain View MFA. And then it also has kind of, kind of substantial creative writing program on the um, MA side, at least online. I don't know about um, about on campus. Um, so there's there's actually quite a quite a lot of support for creative writing at, at SNHU. Um, so t tell us a little bit about, about Mountain View, Ben, and how, how, you, how you came there and anything else about the program. Sure, so um, what low residency means for those of you who aren't familiar is we get together in person for a week every six months. Um, and during that time, you know, we there's some practical things about it. You know, we have agents come up to residency and some of our students have gotten agents that way. Um, and it's good for people to meet each other and, um, you know, be able to talk over their goals with their faculty in person. But I would say the most important aspect of it is it just gives us a little bit of that moment in a peer workshop where you can feel the room reach a certain consensus about something you've written. Um, you know, what I always treasure are the moments where um, someone came in thinking that the important thing about a story they had written was passage A that they had spent, you know, a week on or whatever and didn't think that much about passage B that they spent five minutes on and everyone clearly loves passage B and they can feel the warmth in the room and the excitement. Mm -hmm. And you can see someone's instincts being like, reconfigured right in front of you <laughs> and, yeah. and that's exciting to me um uh and uh you know um so so we do that and then um we're we're very one-on-one -on -one. uh you know uh, students meet with their mentor at residency and um discuss their goals for the coming six months and then they're back and forth with that one faculty member for the next six months uh so if we match you with the right person it works great if we mess up and match you with the wrong person, it's utterly catastrophic. And um, and so what I always tell people who are thinking about a low res MFA program is it's generally either great or terrible, depending on who you're matched with. So you should only ever do a low res where people are really, really careful about um, placing students with the right faculty members and that there's a big enough faculty that um, you can you know you can find your your faculty soulmate as it were your aesthetic match um because man is it not going to work if um you know you're trying to write dune and they think you should be <laughs> writing bride said revisited and um you know uh we we work to avoid that um and uh the um 
uh, and it, it's very different in, in that it's all, um, you know, uh, students send 30 pages during the semester to the faculty mentor. The mentor writes them a six page letter and then they talk about it. Um, and so it's it's very different from what you guys do, which which sounds really cool, too, which is, um, you know, um, asynchronous um, online classes, which I, I don't know that much about, but um, it sounds like you probably get a lot of written feedback from your peers, um, which is cool. And, we do. Uh, it's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we use a, a kind of a, a, a online um, uh, based software called Annotate, um, mm -hmm. and the students um, can upload their submissions into Annotate, which which allows for line line by line editing or comment mm -hmm. by um, by their you know by their peers in the workshop. So one manuscript will have, you know, like a, many different students adding comments on it and there there's room in the comments field for um, students to respond to each other. You know, mm -hmm. so somebody can make a comment on a comment, in other words. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that's that's very helpful, but I do think, you know, there's um, the 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 in-person workshops. I mean, I went to many of them myself in my in my undergrad mm -hmm. um, and and graduate uh, careers. And and there is something I think that uh, you know to be to be completely honest with you, an online program struggles to um, to to you know make a manifest for for its students that that sense of connection that you just described of being in a room when something shifts and a new understanding of a, of a work of art comes comes into um, into existence. That's that's super exciting. Um, and I think that still happens in our program, but it's less less visible or less tangible, maybe somehow, at least in the moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that sounds really cool. Um, uh, I guess it would be um, yeah, it would, it would be fun. Well, at least it'd be fun if people liked your story. <laughs> yeah. Like grow, grow in a particular particular note. It might also be fun if people disagreed about your story. I can imagine like seeing a controversy happen about um, a particular passage and, and that being kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, there's the, you know there are disagreements and all all of course collegially uh, presented. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. One one other difference between our programs is is that the our program is is one that's that's focused on genre, specifically mm -hmm. in popular fiction, whereas your program is more of a, a traditional, I guess, MFA in that it's it's uh, focuses on literary fiction, but also beyond that, uh, on on poetry, I believe, and or does it have poetry? We don't does have poetry. Not. You have nonfiction though, don't you? We have nonfiction. Yeah, yeah, we have fiction, nonfiction, um, okay. and occasionally a playwright. That's that's our. Job. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, and um, uh, yeah, I love poetry, but um, I'm not qualified to to teach it or, or select uh, poetry faculty. Um, but yeah, it's true. Um, you know, we do have um, students who who write plenty of stories that are arguably um, or definitely science fiction um, or other genres, but they tend to be where those genres um, intersect with what's sometimes called literary fiction, you know. Right. Um, that's, like, that's kind uh, of a slipstream, sli so-called slipstream work. 
Oh, okay. I didn't know that term, but that's cool. Yeah. 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 Um, and and so so yeah, um, we know very little about um, the uh, online worlds that grow up around around genre, and I I think you guys are much more immersed in that, which is something that, that really interests me, um, and and something I've never never explored. Um, but um, yeah, we're 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 more traditional. It's um, it's more the traditional publishing world that that we uh, cater to. And it, it's kind of a, it's kind of funny, I think, because um, at one point, um, you know, there were there were just the traditional Iowa like um, mm -hmm. creative writing workshops, and then low res programs like Mountain View came along, and they were looked upon with with kind of suspicion, and they were even looked down upon by those in the traditional programs, and then mm -hmm. the uh, then now online only mfas are coming along and i don't mean to imply at all that, that you that you know you're looking down upon us i'm just it's just interesting that there's this progression that seems to be um making the workshop experience more and more accessible to um, a wider range of people um because you know obviously the low res pro, uh, model is is built for people who are you know they have a job they, mm -hmm. they they can't get away for for two years to to exclusively uh, reside in a workshop environment. They do it for for six weeks, um, and then our our program is is more accessible still because it 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 it, it, it is attract or is available to people who who can't even get away for six weeks or who or, <laughs> or, or who are otherwise just you know. Um, um, have obligations that just that just don't permit um, um, a more traditional uh, standard. Now, I don't know what will come after the online only workshop. I feel certain something will, because it just seems like it, it's broadening in terms of access continually. Yeah, you know, um, it's funny you say that about Iowa. Um, you know, my old teacher at Iowa, Sam Chang, also teaches at Warren Wilson, which is a low residency. Right program so if, if there was a, a snobbery <laughs> it's it's, it's gone, gone now <laughs> but, oh i think it's absolutely uh, gone at this yeah. point it's just yeah. when, when the new the new um you know inventions are first introduced there's there's kind of like yeah. suspicion and nobody knows exactly what to make of them yeah yeah um yeah yeah i'm all for it it um it's it's interesting uh you know um even getting away for a week every six months, which is what we do, is not not always easy for all of our students. Right. So I can really I can really understand why there's a there's a need for something else. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there is if there is any other uh, aspect of our programs that we would. Do you have anything else that you would like to? add about your about the about Mountain View? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the interesting things about um, our program is that uh, we try to sort of offer people who um, have a story to tell, um, but have never really been in a community of writers, um, a new community, and our students tend to call it the bubble, which is to say, like, <laughs> it's this magical bubble where everyone cares about books and and you know it it's like this sort of alternative universe that a lot of them have never experienced um and 
you know, a lot of um, a lot of our students sort of come to us in middle age, um, often out of after sometimes careers in the military, sometimes careers in um, medicine or these other sort of professions that tend to generate a lot of stories. And um, what we try to do is provide a kind of link between people who have lived very much like outside the literary world and the literary world. And so, um, you know, I'm proud that our alumni have been Pulitzer finalists and Whiting Award winners and, um, you know, have been named Barack Obama's 10 best books of 2021 writers and that kind of thing. Um, but the reason we've been able to do it is because we've brought in people who um, had never had any contact with that world before. Um, and so, so to me, that's that's kind of what we're all about is um, sort of like a being a gateway to the traditional publishing universe for people who who have never been part of it before. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really well said. And and I I recognize a lot of that in, in the online MFA too. the the sense of finally uh, being with people who should not just share the same interests, but speak the same language. Yeah. I mean, I remember for me, it was kind of mind blowing to to encounter a group of people uh, who cared about words mm -hmm. in the in the same way that I did, because that was something that was fairly rare uh, until I got into um, until after college, frankly, when I when I really began pursuing, you know, being a writer. I wonder about your program if you found this that that I found is that there are some people who are really shy, except when everything is in text only. And and I wonder if on Annotate, those people are, are really able to kind of um, come through in a way they wouldn't in a uh, synchronous, um, even an online synchronous discussion like this, let alone one in person that, you know, that existing as a text only entity gives them right. a kind of that they don't have in other mediums. What, what do you think about that, Melissa? Yeah, I think so. Um, <clears throat> you know, I've witnessed this firsthand in my thesis classes. Students I've never heard from suddenly come to life on Annotate with brilliant mm -hmm. suggestions. And um, yeah, that's wonderful to see. Um, somebody in the chat asked if we might do a quick breakout room just so students could get to know each other just a bit. Is that appropriate today, Paul? Um, I guess I, I mean, I don't see anything against it. Um, I guess I can try a breakout room. Who who would like to go into the breakout room? I think, I wonder if, how many people are here? I wondered if we might just, if it would be possible to do like five or seven minutes of three breakout rooms, just so small groups could get to know each other a bit. Hey. <laughs> How did, how did that work? I could I couldn't go into any of the rooms, so. Uh, okay, that's cool. That was thrilling. Was it fun? Yeah, it was super fun. Did you guys talk about me while I was while I was out out here in the lobby? We talked about your background. What is going on back there? What is a plexiglass case? <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's the I well I don't know, but I was telling Ben earlier that my my guess is that this is Marcel Proust's um, writing room. It's it's lined with cork. It's um it's actually his it's the actual room he wrote in 
which was uh, sold to a museum in Paris and uh, reassembled. Um, you can visit it if you like. It's 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 an incredible museum, and this is yeah. just one amazing part of it. But anyway, uh, he he was a a kind of an invalid, as we all know, and and had um, uh, asthmatic problems. And so my guess is that this is some kind of weird infuser. Um, uh, he, he used to he used to smoke like cigarettes that were especially made for for asthmatics. So I mean, like as a cure for asthma, that was what was prescribed cigarettes. <laughs> OK, so <laughs> science has come has come a long way. And his brother was a doctor, right? Like an illustrious doctor. Oh, was he that I that I didn't know. I think so. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right, so let's move on to the to the next uh, stage of our talk. I'm very, very interested in in this and then we'll throw it open for questions. And by the way, you can um, you can uh, post your questions in the chat at any time and, and Melissa will will keep track of them and I'll try to keep an eye on them too. But anyway, I live in Brooklyn on on 4th Avenue and 36th Street, right next to a express subway stop that just happens to be the subway stop that um, that uh, the the subway shootings in New York of a couple of weeks ago took place in. And I have to say, I was in New York on 9-11 um, in my apartment in the uh, in the East Village. And uh, not since 9-11 did I see the, the, at least in this particular area of Brooklyn, did I see that intensity of uh, like police response and fire department response and like helicopters everywhere and news people just everywhere. And um, it really gave me kind of like a, a unpleasant deja vu experience. I mean, it was bad on it in its own right, but it also conjured up all of these, you know, memories and associations of a a very uh, unfortunate time in the history of the city and this country. Um, but anyway, and 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 kind of beside the point, it's interesting to me also how quickly that event has now faded from from like uh, you know the the newspapers from the TV stations. It's just gone. I saw I saw the other day, by the way, that the the perpetrator, the the um, you know the alleged shooter. Uh, was was just um, I guess he was just arraigned um, or or some some legal happening took place and it was buried on like you know page page 10 of of the New York Times it didn't even merit the front page anymore um, obviously a lot of other stuff is going on but it was interesting to me how quickly it, it faded from our uh, from our immediate consciousness um, but the reason I wanted to talk to it, talk about it was because it seemed like a kind of event that might last longer in our consciousness. And it made me think about how do writers um, deal with events like that, which uh, cast such a large and immediate shadow. Um, and 9-11 is obviously probably the archetype of, of events like that in, in recent memory. Um, what is the obligation of a, of a creative writer, of a fiction writer? I mean, obviously a journalist can go out and report on it right away. But if you try to write a story, say, about the subway shooter, um, you know, within the next week, 
you might very well be told, oh, it's too soon. It's too soon for something like that for any number of reasons. Um, so I, I'm very curious to know, Melissa and, and, and Ben, what, what, what do you think? What, what is the obligation of the creative writer in a, in a uh, you know, faced with an event like that? Do you want to go first, Melissa? No, I want to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's too soon. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, I'll start. Um, I think, uh, you know, what um, a journalist does is tell you the most immediately important who, what, where, how, why of a situation, right? Um, that's a journalist's job. Um, is to give you the most absolutely central, stripped down, essential series of events that happened. And I think what fiction writers generally do is then kind of look at what got left out of that story, um, what, what people haven't all heard already, you know, what's the other shadow side of that that no one heard. And sometimes it's the perspective of the villain, so to speak, sometimes it's the perspective of people who are quote unquote minor characters in the story. I really love um, Mavis Gallant's short stories about World War II because they're about the stories of people in World War II who you've never heard before. It's never like mm. occurred to you. Like, but they're re they're based on really real things. Like, um, the late homecomer is a story about like a poor German boy who you know, joins the Hitler youth when he's like seven years old and, you know, barely knows what it is and winds up, you know, a teenage soldier in the war and getting taken prisoner by the French. And um, there was this program I didn't know about in France where it was like, well, how are we going to repair after the war? And it was, well, we've got these German prisoners. Maybe we'll keep them around and help them they'll help us repair the country. <laughs> and, and so this guy, you know, doesn't get to go back to Berlin where he's from for like five years after the wow. war. Wow. He's, um, this thing really happened where there were these young German boys who had these, you know, uniforms on that said like um, PG on the back for like, you know, prisoner, gear, or whatever. Um, and um, they were just kind of embedded in families like foreign exchange students. And, and and basically, had absolutely uh, you know, no like, idea. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And you know, her story is about that. It's like that's not the essential story of World War II. It's on the margins of World War II. Right. Right. Um, and and to me, that's a great thing for that for fiction writers to do. And then I guess, oh, go ahead, Paul. I, I was just going to say, it sounds like somebody has a, a mic on. Uh, if you could turn it off, everyone except our presenters, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Go ahead, Melissa. Yeah, I want to speak also to creative nonfiction, which I think is an interesting way to approach current events. I write a lot of social commentary for newspapers and magazines when I'm not writing fiction, and that's a pretty wonderful way of, <laughs> first of all, not having to be, you know, a hard facts journalist, but also to be able to make a personal connection to, um, to a major news story and weave in that personal connection with that news story to show patterns that may have have been repeated over time um, to, to really just put a humanizing face on a, a current news story, if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. so, 
you know, lots and lots of major newspapers reserve a section of their commentary pages every day for that type of creative nonfiction op-ed piece. So that's just one more way of approaching what you're talking about, Paul. Mm -hmm. Can you yeah. can you give an example of, of something that you did uh, along um, those lines? You know, all I can think of is something that I wrote a long time ago when the very first model with Down syndrome walked the catwalk mm. in New York Fashion Week about five years ago. I jumped on that because my younger brother has Down syndrome and he's had a subscription to GQ and a crush on Tom Cruise for about 20 <laughs> years and has always wanted, has always looked to GQ um, as his kind of gold standard of handsomeness. And so I was able to weave in his story and my story um, with, with what that means to the community of people with Down syndrome and their caregivers and friends and what it means to the world of fashion, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And and what's, what's interesting about that, um, or there are many things interesting about that, but what strikes me about it is that, okay, there is a, uh, an example of you taking a current event, tying it into your own personal history and yeah. writing a piece of creative nonfiction. You also have a middle grade book that that okay. is just coming out that is um, also um, also in, in sort of grew, grew out of or incorporates elements of your of your personal your relationship with your brother and, and Absolutely. things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. so this so the same um, the same seed kind of germinated in in different ways. Yep. Uh, depending on whether you decided to take fiction or a nonfiction approach. Well, what was the difference? Oh, in the approach? Well, not so much in the approach as as what what made you decide. I mean, obviously the current event kind of happened and then it sparked a response. Um, but but you still had more to say about the oh. subject and, and you and you decided, well, fiction is now the the way to to say what I have to say. Well, I am a big fan of spinning one topic in as many different ways as possible to maximize efficiency and time and my research. So I actually <laughs> just wrote for the Washington Post about three young adults who have Down syndrome. And one is an entrepreneur and one is the first person with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman. Oh, and wow. another is a model and a spokesperson for the community. And so uh, I'm not done. <laughs> I just, you know, it doesn't, this particular demographic doesn't get enough press. So any way that I can help people to understand this demographic, whether it's middle grade fiction or uh, a journalistic piece, the better. Yeah. That didn't really answer your question, Paul. <laughs> yes, it did. Thank, okay. thank you. It did. Of course, it answered my question. <laughs> But you know, I'm also thinking about because the other thing that occurred to me when I was thinking about this topic before um, our chat tonight was um, was the election of of Donald Trump, and you know, here here's another kind of like uh, you know, intrusion of of cold hard reality into the imaginative life of of like creative writers, you know. And I don't, you know, obviously it was a cold hard intrusion into many other people's lives too, but um, I'm th I'm thinking of like uh, William Gibson. The, the speculative fiction writer who had a, a novel completed um, and and I believe it was at, with his publisher and Trump was elected and he he was like 
I have to change everything in my novel now. I can it cannot I cannot write that this I can this novel cannot be published under my name anymore because it is it is not responsive to this event that that just happened. So he had he took his novel back and rewrote it um, because he felt that otherwise it would be a, a fundamentally dishonest novel in a way that it wasn't just a day before. I mean, I find I just find that fascinating. I don't have a question to ask about it. I'm just I'm just intrigued by it. That's really interesting because I think sometimes people suppose that science fiction novels are about the future and that's that's sort of a makes a case that they're about the present. Well, that's uh, a, that's Gibson's famous famous saying is that, you know, science fiction is not about the future. It's about it's about the present. And I, I agree with him. Well, I mean, everything we write is about the present, even if we're writing something that's set, you know, back in Neanderthal times, like Kim Stanley Robinson, another great speculative fiction writer has done. He's writing about, you know, today. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's why, I mean, one of my little hobby horses is, you know, oftentimes people think of speculative fiction as a, I read science fiction to escape. Well, yes, and, but, and no, because uh, you're really, reading it to engage in some way with with things that you can engage with you know on on a more immediate level not that you know and I don't mean to imply any kind of judgment to that it's just it's just you know it's the way that people are wired differently and I think that's why some of us gravitate towards speculative fiction and and others do not yeah, so I've often wondered um, about the different ways um, people come to be moved by literature. And um, it seems to me like one way is for the world you've created to have a kind of metaphorical relationship to the present, which I think is is maybe something that, that Gibson is interested in doing. And then um, another way to sort of like help people see things anew and therefore move them is to offer a perspective that they've never considered before and there are some writers who are all about like finding that new perspective on on the present and then there are other writers who are about creating an elaborate beautiful metaphor for the present well um, you know that's really interesting because often you hear you know well what's the difference between literary fiction and genre fiction how how, how do you sum up that difference do you think that is one definition of the difference uh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, it's it's so it's such a thorny question. Um, what non-realistic fiction should be considered genre, and 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 what should be considered literature? You know what I mean? Or or should oh, yeah, that yeah. exist? Or you know, uh, I, I I hesitate to wade into those yeah. waters. But, I don't blame you. <laughs> but 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 but, let, but perhaps we could say that um, the gesture or technique of establishing an alternative world um, is is perhaps an effort to establish a metaphor for the present, whereas um, the the new perspective is is uh, is is one that hopes to defamiliarize the present in a different way. But right. that the goals of both are defamiliarization. Well, that's that's super interesting that you that you use that word, which I'm sure was very intentional. Um, I'm I'm of course blanking on the name of the Russian literary critic 
that that was all about defamiliarization. But but that was his uh, that was his take on speculative fiction and science fiction in particular and horror and and, you know, genres like that uh, was all about defamiliarizing the familiar. Um, and I think it's a spe it's something you see, especially in, in certain types of horror, like, you know, the, the turn of the screw um, is, a, is a great example of, of that from, you know, uh, early in the last century. Um, yeah, let's hear it for defamiliarization. And it's a cool word anyway. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Well, we're, we're almost at the end of our of our time, so I'm I'm going to throw things open to um, and I apologize for doing it so late, but I was really caught up in our conversation. Um, what questions uh, anyone in the audience cares to to throw at us? We will do our best uh, to answer. And you can just type them right in the chat. I'm going to type something to Shelly. I don't know how to just direct it to Shelly, so there okay. it is. That's fine. <laughs> we were having a great chat in that breakout room once we figured out how to see each other. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm going to talk to you about that later because maybe oh, this yeah. is something we can incorporate in, in future future chats. I think it'd be fun. I just have no idea how, how it works. <laughs> um, but I better learn fast because we're, we're, you know, you mentioned that you, that you're you have a, uh, um, you know, you have a agents up and to, to the Mountain View for for students to oh, interact right. with. And, and we're starting to do that now. We have um, in about two weeks, we have a, a, a kind of a pitch session set up that will take place in this team's environment for for thesis uh, students where they'll be able to pitch their novels to to um, to agents in breakout rooms, right. so I definitely, I definitely have to figure out how that works. <laughs> I had a great time in my in my um, breakout room. I, I learned about, um, I think it was a, a Doberman puppy who uh, <laughs> who likes to to help you at one of your limbs. Uh, yeah, there she is. Hey, Lynn, uh, students, while she writes. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, uh, Matt, the answer the answer is no, um, and the reason is that you know it's 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 kind of a private uh, exchange between the agent and the and the student. Um, anything can happen in those sessions. You know, there might be an offer made, there might be a request to see a full manuscript, um, and for that reason, we're not we're not going to record it. Sounds exciting. I'll yeah, I'm, I can't wait. I'm in the breakout room. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hmm. Um, well, all right, everyone. Uh, on that note, I am going to uh, bring our chat to a close. I want to thank uh, Ben Nugent at the Mountain View for for joining us. This was really great. And I, I'm sure I'll be seeing you around our neighborhood. Um, yeah, yeah, I look forward <laughs> to it. And, and really nice to meet you, Melissa. Yeah, um, you as well, Ben. Thank yeah, you. Um, and, and all the rest of you. Um, thanks so much for having me here. Um, it yes. was really fun. Yeah, you're you're welcome. And and Melissa, we will see you next time. Yep, sounds good. Thanks All right. everybody. All right. Bye everybody. Bye. Bye.